it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Something seems really dumb about this, but here we go. warm welcome this is the one sensational shot network you're listening to the evening glass with fletcher walton and luke little boy now to the tremendous benefit of every one of our listeners luke and i have already spent off pod two hours setting the world to rights we won't even bother you with our conclusions because uh, they're not <laughs> as, they're certainly not as sunny as the wonderful afternoon saturday sunshine outside right now but uh, we got all of that out of our systems i think i don't want reality to intrude upon us for the next hour, other than Luke, I want to ask you if you've been watching Springwatch because I know it's one of your favourites. Yeah, I watched the whole thing, watched every episode. Um, I think personally that that is worth the the price of the license fee, amongst you know a few other things. But um, it's it, the battle of life and death outside uh, your window and in your garden and just around the corner. I think put, for me, it always feels like well, a sense of gives me a sense of well being, and. Yeah. Um, puts into context my own position in the world so um and also it's just interesting to know what animals get up to right so yeah. that that's cool but yeah I, I really really enjoy it to see parent birds working really hard to sustain a nest only for you know all the birds to get eaten but one you know I, all this kind of thing yeah. it just puts into context the struggle of the world and f- for me that makes me feel really good um because then a little bit of pain and suffering and stuff in the world, you know, though we all strive to not have any pain and suffering, it, it suddenly puts into context like how 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 the world fits together, how balance works. Um, so yeah, I, for, for me it's great. And uh, this year was especially interesting because um, they were social distancing and they all the presenters were you know presenting from their own four corners of the UK. And it's actually really interesting to see how wildlife um, comes back. There's a deleted line from uh, the Lost World Jurassic Park. I think it's in the script, it was in the novelization, it was in the comic book adaptation, it is not in the film. When they go to the workers' village, they see everything overgrown. And I think it was Ian Malcolm's uh, line, and he said, the jungle is always ready to return. And uh, Uh. we saw that in Springwatch, because just for example, you know, on the Thames, outside of London, there were so many mayflies, and then because there's so many mayflies, because, because there's no boats going up and down the river... And yeah. then because there's so many mayflies, the birds come and eat the mayflies. So there's more birds. Like, you, could, you really get a sense of nature reveling in the, in, in the lockdown and the fact that, um, as Ian Malcolm said in that deleted scene, the jungle is always ready to return. <laughs> I, I suppose it, it doesn't take long. And I suppose as well that the country in which we live would have looked vastly different even 200 years ago. Like, the daily life for people... In, in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of interaction just at the very basic level with insects and with birds and then with the things that eat birds and the things that eat the things that eat birds would have been yeah. in more plentiful supply when there was far less to disrupt them. I mean, 200 years ago is just about the Industrial Revolution, isn't it? Yeah. If I uh, remember the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics correctly, that is. <laughs> uh, Springwatch, I, I, again, I, I mention it because I know that Luke loves it, but... I, I always forget to watch it, and then I'll, essentially every season I'll watch one entire episode, um, and it's utterly enjoyable. And the one I saw this uh, this season was Chris Packham uh, took time to read a passage from a book which he really enjoyed. You know, there's yeah. there's such a there's such fulsome honesty and earnestness about oh, yeah. Spring Watch. That's what yeah. I love about it. Yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. Oh God, yeah, yeah. The enthusiasm is infectious. Mm. Um, 
And that's one of the great things about it. I'm getting converts one year at a time. My old friend Joe Thompson, from uh, who I used to work with, he uh, he's moved on to other other bigger, better things now. But he um, he texts me and he said, um, "Man, I've been watching every Springwatch. I've even gone back on iPlayer to catch up with the ones I'd missed." Um, yeah. And I said, "Springwatch is my church. It's the altar I worship, <laughs> worship at." And he said, "Well, you've got you've got another convert." Um, so yeah, one year at a time. Maybe next year will be your season. I do think this was a special one. 2020 was very special because of lockdown and obviously the the, the very clear implications that it has for the environment, where the environment's yeah. allowed to thrive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, an absolute good. Autumn Watch will be soon, coming up. So, uh, oh, when does that start? That'll be sort of October time, I think. So th- yeah, that'll be yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> October into November. So... Um, yeah, that's that'll be good. Hopefully, Michaela Strachan will be back for that one as well. She was in lockdown in South uh, Africa this year, so we had no Michaela. Because that's one of the other things I like about Springwatch. They knew what they were doing when when I was at university over ten years ago. It was Bill Oddie and uh, another couple of people, and you know, for them, for me, they weren't relevant people. And uh, of course, at some point, someone obviously sat in the the Mary Berry room, meeting room, or whatever it is at yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, at Broadcasting House, and said, um. So the generation that grew up with the Really Wild show are like, you know, spending money now and have families and own their own homes or whatever. Uh, let's just, should we just bring back the Really Wild show? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. that's, that's what they did. And uh, yeah, for me, having Michaela Strachan and, uh, and, and Chris Packham back is part, a big part of the appeal, to be honest with you. And I find there, there is an artifice about it. Um, it's individual in its approach and it reflects the personalities of those presenters because Chris Packham... Is an idiosyncratic character, mm. uh, and I've read, I, I read a very short but very good interview with him in something as insignificant as either the Free Sky magazine or like fucking Take a Break. Mm. It was a, a really, with all due respect, insubstantial publication. Mm. But he was talking about how the, his formative experiences, um, how he doesn't think he's going to have children, how he's not much for. Uh, he can live without human interaction. I think he's the sort of fellow that probably has coped very well under lockdown. But he was talking... Well, there's been episodes of Springwatch where I've seen... he Like, him and Michaela are genuinely good friends. And that means a lot for someone who... Like, Chris Packham clearly values friendship, but doesn't need 80 different mates. No, no, no. And there was one uh, back and forth where he said something like... Either... There was an exchange of gifts... And it was all the more touching because we as viewers knew that Chris Packham either doesn't give or doesn't receive gifts from just anybody. Yeah. And that, you know, they've, as you say, is it 25 years they've known one another? Oh, yeah, beyond that, yeah, it was 30 years. I think he even said that at one point, yeah. Yeah. And not to use uh, the language of social media, but that really is a journey, isn't it? Knowing someone for a, a, across a generation. Mm. That re- they really have seen stuff together and... He said, and again, because Packham doesn't make uh, friendships easily, chooses not to, for them to have had that bond for as long as they have. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You sound like Packham now with your earnestness. (laughs) But he, um, he, he, I can't remember what condition he has. So I'm really sorry that I'm not giving this the full credit that it deserves. But he is, I believe, on the spectrum in some way. And, and, and um, he, I believe one of the symptoms, the way it manifests itself, is that he struggles with um, direct touch human touch right, um, right. and he, he did a really good documentary about it it was an eye-opener for me i didn't you know realize that people live this way 
Um, so do look it up and maybe we'll try and put a link in the show notes possibly because I don't remember the exact details. But yeah, that's interesting that, yeah, he, you're absolutely right. He does value very specific friendships and that. Um, the other thing is that he's an old punk. He was in a punk band um, and he used to write poetry and that and, and then wrote lyrics. And I do think that there's a certain punk rock spirit that shines through on Springwatch. And by that, I, t- I talk a lot about punk rock spirit. And, and for me, that is the truest way it ever manifests itself is, is in earnestness, enthusiasm and, um, you know, a just do it kind of attitude, which yeah. is which is what he always brings to the table with Springwatch. Um he, he's an active observer, you know, he, 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 of course he observes nature. You have to observe nature. You can't step in and interfere with it, but he, he's an active observer of nature. That's really cool. Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah. long, long may Swingwatch continue. Absolutely. I do love it. It feels like what's usually expected of anybody who will be, uh, open to the mass market and the mainstream is that they round off their rough edges uh, and that's not been required of Packham and, and of Strachan either. I, yeah, I, really that's va- true. I really value it. You know, it's it's so rare that we allow people to be themselves when they're doing something. It's different when it's uh, somebody who we can more easily identify as cre- uh, expressing themselves through art. Mm. Because you know, if what is Chris Packham? Well, he's a presenter, um, and that isn't usually uh, an arena in which you can really get a sense of someone. You know, honestly, there are presenters that are very good with, very good at wrangling the public, but you don't get the feeling that you're seeing them. You're seeing their capacity to be frivolous and ingratiate themselves with normal people. Yeah. But with Packham, you really feel like, oh yeah, that is that bloke. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. And we found a way to use him. It's so, it's so useful. I don't know what it's, uh, what it's directly comparable to, but. He's somebody we he's he's somebody if we're going to be putting people back up on statues. Oh, I'll tell you this, by the way, um, what I really liked about um, the pulling down of statues Uh was that I think just go for it and then figure out what to do afterwards. Uh, (laughs) I think that I I think that uh, um, everybody will know that there had been petitions to take down the statue of Colston in Bristol for years. Yeah. And they got nowhere. And I think, yeah, pull it down. Then a question has been asked in its removal and we can answer it by saying he had a good run. They've taken him for a bath. Let's just leave him there. Yeah. Or perhaps if it were like Churchill, for instance, which was pulled down, then we'd say, no, he still did more good than harm. Um, and there is still the capacity to venerate him. But Packham, he's the sort of person that hopefully, you know, your children's children's children will be over at London Zoo or in Hyde Park or some corner of Somerset. And they'll say, who's this bloke? And, oh, well, this, this fella, he was a, a, an immense force for good. And yeah. one of the best things Britain ever produced, you know, in the 20th century. We we can be really just immeasurably proud of this bloke's contribution to civic life and discourse. Yeah, hopefully. Maybe... Hopefully history will vindicate him. Because it's always a little bit controversial when he winds up um, at a, a climate protest and then gets arrested. And it's like, um, I, I you know, I can imagine a lot of people thinking, well, Attenborough wouldn't have done that. Uh, mm. You know, he he, he, um, he um, is, is, is very... Um, sort of stoic in his act- activism and uh, uh, res- responds through the appropriate channels of, well, I'll make a lavish documentary about it. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, that, uh, I'll talk to royalty about it. I'll um, talk to government about it. Um, whereas Packham thinks, no, I'm going to ch- just chain myself to the fence. Again, that, yeah, pu- that, that punk yeah, yeah. rock attitude, you know? Yeah, it's, and both work as well. There's uh, 
I, I, w- I don't say that there's room for all of them. I think we need all of them at the same time to get things done. Mm. Petitions are great and uh, very slow activism is great. And even, you know, like as you say, with, with someone like Attenborough, in, uh, becoming a part of the establishment in order to change establishment attitude, sometimes that works. Mm. But sometimes that that alone isn't going to be as effective as someone doing that and then a number of other people doing something on the side. Um, it was our intention today to go back to Luke's A to Z, which we haven't visited for a long old time. I don't even remember the last one that we did. Do you? We skipped ahead. Um, I don't oh, remember. Right. We skipped ahead a little bit. I think we might have done a, one of the latter Bs or one of the early Cs. I don't recall what one it was. Maybe <clears> listeners <throat> can uh, can scroll through their iPhone feed very quickly and see. But um, basketball is the next one. So we're still in the Bs, and you'll notice it's B-A at the beginning of the bees so um i can't remember how many dvds do i have three four hundred is it more than that i don't remember we've got the spreadsheet somewhere it's always a tricky one as well because obviously on the electronic labyrinth show that's where we think well we'll do a whole thing on that and i was really trying to pull fletcher's arm to do back to the future and he said well no we need to do that properly that needs put forth a almost a hypothesis you know and and, and then start to interrogate it that's what we will do when we get to back to the future but um with some of them it's tricky because what is there to say uh, Basketball. I adore the film. Uh, it's one of my favourite comedy films of all time. I know that Ghostbusters is like goddamn near flawless. I know that you know Groundhog Day is goddamn near flawless. Basketball, of course, is probably very flawed and patchy and uh, and 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 far from a perfect construction of a of a motion picture comedy. But uh, I. It's one of my favourite comedies, partially because it's so stupid, so offensive as well. Quite often offensive. Um, Yeah. And I enjoy that about it because, as I said on my Ben Stiller, uh, on the My Ben Stiller episode, our Ben Stiller episode a few episodes back, you know, for me, comedy really should never be tied down um, and nothing should really be off limits. And for me... Life is like a big dead corpse that that's by the by the river, and I'm the I'm the guy that's like walking past it, and I look at it and I go, "Whoa, what's that?" And I have to like get a big stick and start to poke and prod it uh, <laughs> until it starts to fall apart a little bit, and then a limb will fall off. It will start to yeah. ooze pus, and I'll start to figure out what what the what the hell is going on with this thing? What is it? Oh, it smells awful. But I'll keep I'll keep prodding until I've sussed it out. And I always think that that's true of comedy um, and it's true of basketball because it's, you know, there's a lot of stuff in here now that people would probably call racist or whatever. Um, They might not even be wrong, but yeah, yeah. I do do enjoy enjoy it a lot. Um, Basketball is a 1998 comedy by David Zucker. I think it's... um... I think it's a forgotten Zucker. It is. Zucker is the author of Airplane with his brother Jerry. Jerry eventually went off to do ghost and yeah. first night on his own yeah, uh, yeah, yeah went yeah. somewhat legit but um david stuck with comedies they did airplane together they did the naked gun films top secrets one of my favorites of theirs i watched it again recently and i found it hysterically funny because it's got um a more pronounced dedication to physical comedy top secret is a pastiche of two very specific and um anachronistic Genres, considering that the film was made with Val Kilmer in 1984, it's a pastiche of spy movies and of uh, pictures like Beach Blanket Bingo, um, 
uh, beach party movies and Elvis movies from the late 50s and 60s. Very niche, and yet they did it in 1984. But one of my favourite gags in that, for instance, is uh, there's a moment where during an attack on the chateau, um, Kilmer and his buddies are lobbing in grenades, and a grenade flies into the centre of a room, and there's seven or eight uh, Nazi communist soldiers around the edge of the room, and they all kind of like recoil in horror, and one of them jumps into the centre of the room to throw himself upon the hand grenade and bear its terrible brunt. And it explodes, and he mm. stays still, but everyone else <laughs> gets pu- pushed back by the explosion and flies out the window. <laughs> right, yeah, Odd yeah, things yeah. like that. There's another really good bit as well where um, they take the Western trope. Uh, Val Kilmer and his love interest flee out the back door of a concert hall and go down to... Um, Go down to a set of bicycles. They grab two bicycles and then Val goes, whoosh, shoo, 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 to all the other bicycles. Yeah. And the seven or eight other bicycles go, nay! Yeah. And their lights come on and they... <laughs> I have seen they, that. They cycle that. off like their horses. Yeah. Anyway, um, so... <laughs> I have seen to- that. Top Secret's a really good one. and uh, uh, I saw... Uh, and I've seen, obviously, Police Squad, the TV show, and then all the naked guns. That's, yeah. That, that's kind of... Yeah. I went from airplane and, um, through that. And uh, they did Ruthless People as well, which is a uh, straight comedy. Um... And basketball is, I think, somewhat forgotten. And I think most people would probably think Airplane, Naked Gun, Scary Movie, because the Zuckers came back in with Scary Movie, or rather, David Zucker came in, uh, took over the Scary Movie franchise. The third one, yeah. And they did, uh, he he was involved in three and four and five. And there's a whole phalanx of um, uh, parodists and satirists. Really, it begins as satire and parody, then it becomes just parody. And by the end of it, once you're talking about the um, inglorious likes of Jason Friedberg and Aaron Seltzer, mm. once they're doing their Meet the Spartans and their various movie movies, yeah. their idea of a joke is simply, there's Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Look at that wacky fucker. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, I think that Zucker was... He still had he still had comedic electricity... He did. ...running out of his fingertips when they did basketball. Uh, um, based on a true... I say true story, based on his own life as well. Mm. Basketball is a sport that he invented on his driveway um, and it's basically shooting hoops but with baseball rules so you get different points from different parts of the driveway uh, all based on kind of, oh well it's a home run from back over there and that, that bit, you know, if you do it just from there it's first base or whatever. I mean I don't understand baseball rules and stuff but you know, you, you broadly get the, get the gist. Um, yeah. And he did it on the uh, his driveway uh, it actually actually had a local league in the neighbourhood, and like the Los Angeles like news started reporting on it and stuff. Um, and this film is about that, but takes it one step further that it becomes a national phenomenon. Um, so my point that I'm trying to make, I guess, is that this film was obviously something of a passion project for him because it was based on his own life, right? Yeah, yeah. The film is released in 1998. I think its first. Uh... Its first stumbling block is something I noticed while watching it the other day, and that its cast is incredibly 90s, Mm. essentially to the exclusion of work elsewhere. So uh, its masterstroke is casting Matt Stone and Trey Parker of South Park. They were convinced that they were getting cancelled, so they committed themselves to making this picture with Zucker. And then it turned out they didn't get cancelled, and they they had (laughs) three, three hours sleep a night to do South Park during the morning, go and shoot, three hours sleep, Get up, do South Park in the morning, go and shoot baseball. Yeah. yeah. With the cast, I think it's useful to consider it in this context that Hollywood has always taken people from one area of popular culture 
and then thrown them in another. If they're a stand-up comedian, they'll get handed a sitcom. If they're an athlete, sports star like Shaquille O'Neal, Brian Bosworth, they'll be given a couple of films. Howie Long as well was another in the 90s. Uh, and we've British film industry isn't immune from this. Martin McCutcheon in Love Actually, for instance, succeed in one part of the business and then just get cast in a film, whether they were suited to cinema or not. Uh, so I'll give you... An, Tom Green is a great example of this. Yeah. Wherein I always think... He, so he was in Road Trip and Charlie's Angels and a picture called Stealing Harvard. He's really only got a cameo in Charlie's Angels. I don't mind Tom Green. His show was OK. I'm glad he was out there doing it. It's nice that he made some money for it. Uh, and he's fine in Road Trip. But really, I always... Even while watching those films, and even just as, as little as five years afterwards, I always think to myself, how would we explain this to our children when they say... Okay, so I know Sean William Scott, he was in the American Pie, and uh, Breckin Mayer, I saw him in Clueless, and Ethan Soupley, he's now thin, I know him. But who the, who the fuck is Tom Green? What, what was he, Dad? And you think, well, I don't really know how to put it. Like, <laughs> he, he, he did a show, and then they thought he could do some films. Yeah. And they were sort of right for a bit, and Tom Green's an example. Vinnie Jones is another one where, he, you know, footballer, mm. then he got cast in Lockstock, and I know he still makes films now, he is an actor now, but really... The only ones that we could probably name off the top of our heads, he in oh, that yeah. initial glut of Lockstock, yeah. Mean Machine, yeah. Gone in sixty seconds, yeah. X Men Three, and oh, after God, that, yeah, he's in X Men Three. He's uh, yeah, uh, What's the line? What's his line? I'm the juggernaut, bitch. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Like, watching at the cinema, I found that distasteful and jarring, and then I found out that it's a direct quote from a much parodied comic book panel. No, hold on, no, no, it's um, no, it's even stupider than that. It's a parody video. X-Men cartoon redubbed parody video. Uh, and for me, that's the point where executives need to step in. It doesn't matter how appealing that joke is to those that understand it. That's a, a tiny niche. And uh, then the other 50 million people that you that are required to see it for the film to make any money aren't, aren't going to understand it at all. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, so that's its origin. The problem right. is, of course, if you then open Get that Billy up Jones to, to a, say it. Yeah, you, you know, yeah. Uh, the rest of the world doesn't understand that in-joke. I mean, and that's entirely the problem with the mass market. You can't really... It, idiosyncrasies are very rarely commercial. One exception, Mad Max. Mm. Really eccentric film. All four of them are really eccentric. Mm. And everybody likes them. Like Mad Max did astonishingly well, and Mad Max 4 is really weird. Cause I, was, I was watching Mad Max last night and thinking, God, this, it, these films are so Australian. Yeah, but everybody connected to him. Which and there's a difference. Crocodile Dundee, um, Paul Hogan wrote that with the deliberate intention of appealing to Americans. He wanted to make a commercial film, and he thought there's a few funny things about Australia. It'd be funny if an Australian went to America. And what I want to do is I want to give Americans what they think an Australian is. Yeah, yeah. And I think I could get rich doing that. And he was right. But Mad Max was less so. Mad Max was like, what are we like in Australia? Um, We're into cars. Fast cars, tits, tits are brilliant, rough looking fellas, that's great too, some arse as well, and slapstick, you know, as presented in the Mad Max films, Australians like tits, but even better than that is a kind of slapstick Benny Hill presentation of them where, for no particular reason, there's a couple, there's a couple in a tent, Yeah. and when all the cars uh, speed away and fly past, the tent flies open, oh, she's got an orcs out, whoa! Yeah. Fly me, mate. Ah, she didn't expect that. And look at him. His old chap swinging in the wind. Oh, well, you know. Um, uh, 
But the point I was making is that, yeah, we're so used to Johnny Knoxville, potentially Jessica Simpson's another one of these. And so you would think, oh, right, so South Park was doing quite well. Snap up Trey Parker and Matt Stone, milk a bit of something out of them before their bubbles burst. Yeah. But, but number one, they're excellent. They're excellent comic perform. They're excellent live action comic performers. And I'd seen Orgasmo and yeah. I knew Cannibal the Musical as well. So I knew they were good. But I think anybody watching this now, anybody going to basketball now would find them revelatory. There's, when I say they're excellent, like they, they've arrived fully formed. Well, I, I think it's because they're really good friends. And, uh, mm. you know, it, it really is seeing that. So they did the movie because, uh, A, because they thought they were going to get cancelled. And um, the DVD has like a bare bones recorded at the time as a promo making of. Um, mm. thing and and I think Trey Parker says we have to do it because it's going to be the biggest dumbest movie ever and yeah and I think that who else would decide w- would do it on that basis other than like two best friends who go yeah, oh, yeah. oh god this is going to be like the dumbest fucking thing on the planet like we have got to do this uh, and they have such fun with it and um, there is there's seen there's certain scenes that actually don't meet aren't even references to things like you were saying uh, uh, earlier on about um where a lot of these parody films eventually went under the stewardship of um of Zuka and eventually yeah you're right it's like oh it's like that film or th- th- that's the extent of the reference there's one mm. moment in here when they go into uh, a hospital and uh they start to they're starting to kind of do um, like the paddles and stuff. Give me those paddle things that George Clooney uses. And yeah. they're, they're trying to revive this kid uh, who looks like he's gone into a coma, but un- unknown to them, it's just because they're sitting on the wrong lead. And uh, they go into this quick improv piece where I'm giving it all she's got, Captain, which is obviously Scotty. And then it, go- it, go- it goes into... Uh, various different kind of Scottish accents and one bouncing off the other and it ends in one of them just going I love you always have and then they laugh <laughs> they, and then they laugh at each other's gag and for years until doing this podcast I'd thought oh, I wonder what that is from because they do Scotty and then they do another couple of lines I wonder what I wonder what that's from and I'd never know and then I found when I was looking into this piece it's it's not from anything it's two friends yeah. just doing a couple of like funny jokes they even laugh at their own joke on camera because they've just improved it, and then they get. But they kind of laugh at it in character, and then they just crack on with the scene. And 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 I think it's that element that, like you say, that that works so well because they are just having that. It just they're having the best time ever. Obviously, just dicking about with it. Um, I think again in that same documentary, I can't remember who it said. I think it might be Suki who says it, but he says basically it's about ten percent of the script that's that's in the movie. The rest yeah, is yeah. All, is all improved. And I think we're just lucky that it happens to work so well. Do you know what I mean? Because we, you know, we've all been yeah. there where sometimes this stuff, you know, do- doesn't always work. But I think because they're two best friends, I don't know, it works, hangs together. Got another example of that from Spaced, <clears throat> Reese Shearsmith's line reading. Uh, it was an innocuous line, and they told Reese, "Just keep going with it. Just keep going bigger and bigger on the line." The line was a, a sarcastic retort to. Tim's line, and I just said, "Oh yeah," and thought of that, and then it just, it just grew and grew into a ludicrous, um, pantomimic version of it, without not even really sounding like the, the words anymore. And it kind of, I did it by increments, and when we were filming it, it became uh, with quite a few takes on it, and I saw that they were laughing, so I thought, "Well, I'll just keep doing that more and more." The quarterfinals of next week, we could jeopardise our chances. Oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> 
spiralled into a ridiculous, <laughs> almost like Tourette's extreme, <laughs> this thing that just came out. Oh, yeah, I'm that. <laughs> and forever, I thought, what is that? In, what is that in reference to? And it's hilarious, but I thought it must be something. And, yeah. it, you know, it's Ed and Simon. It must, sorry, Ed, Simon and, and Jessica. It must be in relation to something. And it isn't. They just on set said, keep going, keep going, bigger, bigger, bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it became this iconic thing. And it's the, yeah, it's the same with basketball. There's a few moments where you think, oh, I don't get what this is. But it's just them. Uh, one of the bits I really love is uh, the Steve Perry psych out. Steve <laughs> Perry. <laughs> yeah. And you think, what's that? No, it's nothing. It's just something that friends do to one another. And, they, you know, he sings a journey song and then he does Steve Perry's solo stuff. But mainly it's just Steve Perry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Why? Why not? And, and that's the kind of um, it's the kind of honesty I love where you're... Uh, I love being essentially inculcated into a friendship group. Um or in another way, you could say, like, brought into a tiny cult, a filet do, a madness shared by two. Yeah. Uh, and that's just... When, when you're with them and... and yeah. Uh, so their casting is a masterstroke. It had originally been mooted that Farley would take it, and I suppose maybe Spade would have come in for that. Oh, that, maybe, and that could have worked. It could have been, yeah. I think it would have been uh, uh, inherently more conventional. Mm. Uh, but then, going back to the weird cast... Um, Yasmin Bleeth, I think she was Baywatch. No recognition outside of that tiny snapshot mm. in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jenny McCarthy. Jenny McCarthy was something of a superstar in the 90s, but she was a good example, and I don't mean to diminish what abilities she has. You can imagine that I'm somewhat sceptical of them. Yeah. But it's like she was a funny woman before we found funny women. Yeah. Like, she was... A studio executive's idea of, oh, that crazy girl, and she sticks her tongue out, and she's got great tits and yeah. blonde as well. And you think, well, no, actually, a funny woman's Janine Garofalo. You know, she writes her own shit. She's subversive and satirical. It's as though in the 90s we weren't really allowed so many of them. Sarah Silverman was another one who, I think, had she been 10 years later, she'd possibly be right now as big as Kristen Wiig yeah. or Melissa, uh, Melissa McCarthy. And at the time... Clearly, it shows in casting studio comedies, they said, yeah, Jenny McCarthy. Now, sometimes you're lucky. Cameron Diaz actually is funny. Yeah. She's a, a, a comic, a female comic performer that, like uh, Diane Keaton or early Goldie Hawn, is actually funny. And then the cast is rounded out by, and it's a really small cast, cast is rounded out by Ernest Borgnine and Robert Vaughan doing their, so they don't really get that much to do. I'll move on quickly, and then we'll dart around a bit, but I'll move on quickly to the comedic layering that the premise affords them and right i'll explain it like this i can't be doing with um faux documentaries any longer so people like <laughs> us did it 20 odd years ago uh, then the office did it and subsequently so many sitcoms have based themselves on that premise yeah i mean what we do in the shadows is fine but it does it as well i, str I struggle it. with that even like i enjoy it a lot but so many of those tropes i'm just so over I i've started to watch the second season i really enjoyed the film i i just i you know for, for me the best gag was because they were vampire housemates i just remember in the film that they had to get invited into a nightclub that that was my <laughs> my, my, my favorite bit but like the TV show, I don't know, man. I watch it, but so many of those tropes, I'm completely over. And the other, the, I think it also reached its zenith when Disney, after they'd done the two new Muppet pictures, they did a new Muppet TV show, and they did it like a like The Office, 
like a straight to camera. There was cutaway talking heads, yeah. and you know the Muppets, man, the Muppets are like both a parody of variety shows and also a sincere recreation of variety shows. You know, mm. a genre that's now no longer in existence, but the Muppets still do it. You know, uh, yeah. and as soon as they started to do this, this, this really cynical, in my opinion, like you know, faux documentary, just did not work for me. Um, you know, get get me Spinal Tap anytime, but I, I feel like we've I feel like we're over it. You know, and that's what Siegel gets right. Siegel is a very earnest fellow. He he's incredibly good at conveying uh, raw humorous emotions uh, at surface level. Mm. He it, many of his characters can't really hide how they're feeling. I really love that bit. I'm not even sure if this is directly connected, but I just want to remind us of the bit in. Um, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, where him and Aldous, Russell Brand, are out on the surfboards. And Russell says something like, uh, well, I was cycling through the uh, interminable drivel on uh, Sarah's iPod. And I found your track, you know. And uh, I must say, it was an oasis. It was like a, a gothic Neil Diamond. Mm. And, uh, and Siegel says, oh, God, that's exactly what I'm going for. You're so fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, well, you know, you know. And I, 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 I really love that. And I really love Siegel. And you're right about... Um, you're right about the Muppet Show. I mean, it was a. It's funny that we still talk about it now because, as you said, we don't have variety shows. But understanding, do you remember when we did Mission Impossible? And you kind of have to contextualise it and say it wasn't just this thing out of nowhere. Everybody was make, remaking sixties and seventies yeah. TV shows. Yeah, it was, it was like the same year as the Brady Bunch movie or something. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, you know, what, what, Dragnet was eighty-seven, yeah. but we went back to Adam's Family and Maverick and The Fugitive. Um, and with the Muppet Show, you got to remember that. The 70s was full of variety shows, and we can't remember all of them. I know there was the Flip Wilson show, there was the Smothers Brothers, mm. um, Sonny and Cher had a show, I think, very briefly, and there is a dozen uh, better examples of what we're talking about. And The Muppet Show was a direct satirical response to that, mm. uh, and it worked very well. And so then taking it out of its time, with kind of, you eventually, like with Mission Impossible, you eventually, you're in, in, in touch with a generation who don't remember why this thing started to begin with it's quite uh surprising yeah but um yeah so so getting back to the point the, the reason i don't like pretend documentaries modern family does it parts and recreation does it is because it's a really lazy easy shortcut to comedy because you allow you create a space in which characters can say exactly what they think yeah in a, and in ordinarily a they wouldn't yeah exactly. yeah yeah they so they the express camera. yeah they express their opinion um, and I think that's cheating, basically. That's fucking cheating. That's playing with cheat codes. Uh, yeah, of course it's funny. And I know that most people want to work an eight-hour day and then laugh for half an hour. But, you know, comedy is has grown in sophistication over the last million years. And that's why you watch something like Laurel and Hardy and or even the Marx Brothers, and a lot of the time you're thinking, oh, yeah, I can see how this would have been funny. Yeah, yeah. That's not to diminish them. They were working with everything that they had at the time. And something like Hell's a Poppin' from the 40s is still very funny. And some of the Marx Brothers stuff is. But a lot of the time you're thinking, oh, I can see how this would have been funny. And I don't like to see... Uh, the Invention of Lion was another one where it was as though Gervais... Where it was as though it was identified that the funniest thing that Gervais can offer is people telling the truth, and but in a, that being... Um, very embarrassing mm. <laughs> anyway but in contrast to that what i like about basketball is that it's milieu is an invented game so as luke said uh, david zucker and i presume jerry zucker had a, a a melange of 
basketball and baseball that they played on their driveways in Los Angeles. And eventually they made this film out of it. But what that does is that tr- that affords so many tremendous comic opportunities because you're doing inventing a sport and then doing... The, the film does have a light pastiche of uh, American sports culture. Yeah, and, and, or, and, and, or rather, and at the rather, beginning... it. At the beginning of the movie, there's a very grandiose, you know, flashback to Trey Parker, Matt Stone's kids when they're watching sport and are inspired by it. And, and he catches yeah. the, the home run uh, ball. Um, and of course, the voiceover is talking about. So they set the film up as very much a critique of sport. I don't think the film necessarily is that. But um, they set it yeah, up. You're as right, a, you're a, right. A, they set it up as a critique of the state of American uh, sport. Now that corporations have bought everything up. Um, here, one of my favourite gags at the beginning is when all the teams are then moving around from state to state. Soon, it was commonplace for entire teams to change cities in search of greater profits. The Minneapolis Lakers moved to Los Angeles, where there are no lakes. The Oilers moved to Tennessee, where there is no oil. The Jazz moved to Salt Lake City, where they don't allow music. The Oakland Raiders moved to L.A. and then back to Oakland. No one in Los Angeles seemed to notice. The search for greener pastures went on unabated. Continued expansion diluted the talent pool, forcing owners to recruit heavily from prisons, mental institutions, and Texas. Yeah, they set it up... Sorry, I'll let you get back to your point, but they they set the film up as a critique of modern sport, so it does touch on some of that. I don't think it really is that. You're right, it does that, and then forgets to be that, and that's one of the drawbacks of the film. But, you know, to an extent, that's a different film. It's a shame that it looks like it's going to be that, and it isn't. Mm-hmm. But that film is there still to be made. It's slightly, it's slightly disappointing that they forget to do the critique they had in, had implied they would. But then we move on with it. And what I like is that instead it does offer um, gentle parody and satire of a dozen different American sports conventions that provide really legitimate avenues for comedy yeah. that are far more far more legitimate than just speaking to the camera and saying why well, you don't one of my fa- one of my favorites is when uh it's, it's more toward the end of the movie but it's when they're in playoff season they've been a player in, the, in the commentary that the commentators are talking about uh well we've been in playoffs now uh, after the grueling uh, basketball season we're now in the nine weeks of playoffs so with last night's victory over boston next week the beers must beat indianapolis in order to advance to charlotte that's in an effort to reduce their magic number to three. Right, and then the Beers can advance to the National Eastern Division North to play Tampa. So if the Beers beat Detroit and Denver beats Atlanta in the American Southwestern Division East Northern, then Milwaukee goes to the Denzel Cup. Unless Baltimore can upset Buffalo and Charlotte ties Toronto, then Oakland would play LA and Pittsburgh in a blind choice round robin. And if no clear winner emerges from all this, a two-man sack race will be held on consecutive Sundays until a champion is crowned. Right. In every scene, we have... In the opportunity for background gags, we've got cheerleaders and their outrageous outfits. Mm-hmm. There's the team names, as Luke alluded to. They're fairly insensitive. Oh, they're Some racist. Some of these are. Yeah, the, the... yeah, but I mean, no, I think that's a miscategorization. They're not racist. They're not racist. Um, they're uh, making comedy out of broad cultural stereotypes or differences, and I'm not using that as a euphemism. The teams are Dallas Felons, Detroit Lemons. Miami Dealers, LA Riots, Milwaukee Beers, New Jersey Informants, San Antonio Defenders. It's fairly hack stuff, but in this context it works because it's only a tiny joke among 20 other tiny jokes. Yeah, it, no, it, doesn't, it doesn't bother me. They're, 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 no. they're brilliant. There's the, there's the Dallas Felons. Uh, yeah. I can't remember the San Francisco name uh, team name, but they're all gay. Uh, San Francisco Ferries. Right. 
There's so yeah, you know, it's it's to the knuckle, but I, I think that it needs to be understood. My favourite is the but... LA riots. The, they're yeah, just called yeah. the LA riots, which is after is it... a race war. Uh, you know, I I can't believe. Yeah. You know, it, it's so um, cheeky, but I love it. Luke and I remember this time, and some of our listeners will as well. But honestly, at the end of the nineties, we did think we had figured things out. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I know it's mad. I know it's mad to say that, but I think a lot of the time, a lot of people think that the era they're in is the end of history. And they may think that there's not much more progress to make. We don't think that now. But if you'd have asked us eight years ago, I think you might have said, yeah, fucking hell, we're doing really well. Yeah. It can't, it, surely it can't get much better than this. Uh, and it didn't. It got much worse, actually. <laughs> but, um, but I th- yeah, at the end of the 90s, uh, I, I think there was a general understanding that enough work had been done um, in a number of civil rights and social acceptance directions that we could just about make naughty jokes yeah. without it really denigrating or oppressing a part of society. Yeah. And I think that, I, you know, looking at what we're dealing with now, I do f- long for the relative, um, I'll put it as racial coolness of the 80s and 90s where Eddie Murphy and then Wesley Snipes, when they played black characters, they were their race was not necessarily intrinsic to the performance. Yeah. I rewatched Beverly Hills Cop just a few days ago. Um, I love it. And what I love about Eddie's performance and the difference between what he does and what every Eddie Murphy alike that's come after him does, he's not a clown. He's a satirist. And in every situation, he's in control of that situation. So although he makes jokes, it's from a position of relative power. I think that's really fascinating because when we think of, say, Martin Lawrence or Kevin Hart, joke is that they're slightly in over their head, they're stammering, they're clowns. But Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy, Beverly Hills Cop, capable, confident, always in control, every scene. Mm. Taggart, would you mind explaining to me what you and Rosewood were doing in a strip bar out of our jurisdiction when you were still on duty? Sir, before you chastise these two officers, I think of something you should know. The only reason that they were at a strip bar was because they were tailing me and I went to this place. Now, these two officers were sitting outside wondering what I was doing. I wasn't having a good time. I'm into things like that. Anyway, these guys waited outside. And the only reason that they came in was because they saw two suspicious-looking gentlemen with bulges in their jackets going into the place. Well, it turns out that these guys were going to commit a robbery, sir. These men watched them, waited for them to make their move, and then they foiled a crime. I did not know what was going on. I was watching the show having fun. I'm still freaked out by it. You must have a sixth sense. I don't know what you teach these fellows, but they're not just regular cops, okay? They're super cops. And the only thing missing on these guys are capes. I really like that. And I, that's, the, that's the pivotal difference. And I think it's a shame that we now... I don't know if we've lost ground, but we're going through a cultural period where we need to essentially sort out a few basic truths and then maybe we can return to what you and I probably thought was a, 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 in, in many ways a slightly more progressive era than now where with a picture like white men can't jump yeah. um, as Aidan always calls it there's a lot of racial horseplay but it's everybody's equal Yeah. and we were able to you know we were able to have a Puerto Rican a black actress a black actor and a white actor and there was racial difference certainly but the the equality among them meant that they were better able to make silly jokes at one another's expense. And there wasn't, you know, the, there weren't really the kind of power dynamics that people constantly perceive now. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
but I've um, circled right away from the point, which was that, hold on, I've got a drink of water here, hold on. Which was that every scene gives you an example, so you can have uh, the, the mad cheerleaders costumes. Every time there's a new team, you get a funny team name. Mm-hmm. There's the, the stadiums uh, have sometimes have comic elements to them. The theme nights, like dozen egg night, yeah. free range chicken night, yeah. anal probe night. Yeah. And then the, the, the best um, the best innovation to deliver legitimate comedy into this situation was the psych outs. So this is a convention within the game of basketball that they invent because uh, Matt and Trey are inventing this game as they go along. They invent it originally to embarrass some jocks mm-hmm. that challenge them to a game of basketball out in the suburbs and they say we don't play that fucking suburban shit we play street ball and so they're they're playing their game and then just as the their opponent is about to just as their opponent is about to shoot the basket uh matt swears in his face and he says what the fuck and he says oh that's a psych out didn't you know yeah i can do anything i want to put you off to put you off your shot and what again what that means is that we've got so many uh legitimate comic opportunities to do silly shit but keep it within the uh the accepted created universe yeah so you can even uh, go into, <laughs> into into prop comedy, you know, and, and everything. So yeah, yeah, you're right. It starts off with things like Steve Perry, but then we get into like really masterful, great stuff. Like one of my absolute favourite is when Trey Parker gets up with um, a see-through bag of white flamonji <sighs> looking stuff and he and a big straw, and he says, "Oh God, liposuction from Marlon Brando's ass," and then he starts <laughs> to he starts to suck on it, going, "Ah." Oh, Oh, it's so salty. <laughs> oh, this guy ate a lot of pork. <laughs> and, and, and the guy just can't take it anymore and faints. But then what's really wonderful about it is that as as they go, hey, that was a great psych out dude or whatever, he's still sucking it going, oh, no, it's terrible, which implies that he wasn't acting and it maybe it was fat liposuction from Marlon Brando's ass. <laughs> so that's one of my favourites. The other, the other one I really like is when he uh, has a fake arm, very slowly um, slices his finger off. And then there's blood everywhere. That's an awesome yeah, one. Yeah. That's great. The Cartman psych out's really good as well. And the always dangerous Grunsky coming up. I think I hit this guy, Coop. He hasn't missed a shot all night. I know, but I don't know what to say. Nothing works on him. Hey, Tom, it's fat. Dude, that's not cool. Yeah, that's not cool. No, no, no. Just do it really subtle. Subtle. Hey, Grunsky, you losing weight? <laughs> and the um the uh the yeah they you're right it's because they're such good friends that they spark off each other so well and when they're doing things like uh is this couch fold out to a bed yeah totally great bed but that's jenkins bed your bed's over here dude that is so fucking weak how am i supposed to get a chick in that no don't worry dude you couldn't get a chick if you had a hundred dollar bill hanging out of your zipper yeah i could no dude you're a little bitch I am not. I don't even know why I hang out with you guys. Because you're a piece of shit. I am not a piece of shit. Well, yeah, but you're a little bitch. Sure. God damn it, man. I swear you guys rip on me 13 or 14 more times. I'm out of here. It was always written as just two two guys. Um, but they wanted a chance to hang out with um, Dan ba- Dan ba- Is it What's his surname? Ba- Backer. I think Big- it's just Dean, Dean Backer. Dean Backer, yeah. It's a very yeah. odd name. They wanted, they wanted to hang out with him just on sex, their mates. So, um... Yeah, they just wrote a third third wheel kind of role. One of the reasons I adore it so much as well is, and I'll, I'll say this very quickly, because um, we should get back to the movie itself, is because I watched this. I mean, really, this is the same way as the fact that they're such good friends. 
I watched this Christmas Eve, 2002 or 2003. Um, it was on late night Channel 4. Uh, happened to rec- I then hit record because I was like, what the hell is this? This is awesome. So I hit record like halfway through it. Um, and then we all went into school after the Christmas holidays and all of my friends had seen it. You know, jo- my friend John had seen it and Ben had seen it. So we just ended up quoting this thing. This film, we quote it, all of us collectively, my friend Toby, to this day that we communicate through basketball. So um, <laughs> we will often, I will often say... You know, these kids with their Pac-Man video games and hula hoops, they have attention spans that can be measured in nanoseconds. Like, that's just something that we <laughs> say to each other, which means, <laughs> it just means that, oh, I guess I guess they had a short attention span. Uh, we, we'll quote it endlessly. So that's part, yeah, part of the fun. That is the fabric of our childhood. Here's what I can say about basketball. I first saw it more than 20 years ago. It hasn't diminished. Back then, I thought it was a very funny comedy, a very funny, limited comedy with two great central performances and a lot of okay stuff flying around it. And uh, as I said earlier, a lot of intelligent mechanisms for delivering fun comedy. Intelligent, legitimate mechanisms. Watched it again the other day. Same thing. Yeah, I'm not. It, it isn't. I, I, like you say, it's uh, among your favourite comedies of all time. I don't put it that highly. Uh, but I still love it as much now as I did 20 odd years ago. It's only one of my favourite comedies of all time because of the imprint and the um, footprint that it's left, the size of the footprint it's left in my life because of when, when I when I found it, when I experienced it and the, how I've shared it with my friends over the years. Yeah. That's why it's one of my favourite ever comedies because, um, because all of those lines that we were just quoting, um, things, things like uh, Ted Denslow, dead at 85... His hairpiece was 24. Uh, <laughs> things like that, are, to me, to this day, it's just how I communicate. So that's why I think it's one of the greatest comedies of all time. But it's, it's certainly... look. I'm Looking at it objectively, I know it's not. I'm aware. You said it earlier, and I wanted to come back to it, because I did want to think just briefly about uh, the insensitive jokes that it makes. And I want to make a point that I don't think this is racialist or racist. I think this is just funny. When... Trey Parker goes to Calcutta to investigate the sweatshops that are making uh, the merchandise out of basketball. Yeah. And their uh, hard hats, the helmets that the workers wear, are turbans. Yeah, there's that. There's also there's loads. I think that's just I think that's just funny. There's, and I think there's goats in the taxi and that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Goats in the goats in the taxi, and I think. I think a modern audience that looks at that and immediately jumps to claims of insensitivity or racism, I think that's the point where you're you're reaching and stretching too far and I think that your ideology is the problem, that you've been told to be too sensitive to everything mm. and as a result you perceive injustice and insensitivity everywhere i'll talk about something that um trey parker and matt stone say on interview as well on the making of and i really do think this is true and it goes back to it loops back to what i was saying about how i like to poke things with a stick until you know i've, I've found <laughs> yeah. out what they're made of mm. um trey parker and matt stone in an interview say that we make fun of everything um and th- the minute that we step back from touching a certain topic or something um is the minute that that the stuff that we have then then done in the past then does become offensive and and it and we do become bigots and all the things that people say that we are 
like we we have to like make fun of absolutely everything on an equilibrium like that i think that's the kind of point they're getting at um so that yeah. there's, there's nothing that they won't touch no topic that they won't touch like it's all there to be made fun of it's all there as a source of comedy the minute they say no we won't go on to, into that territory then you're suddenly calling into question like literally everything they've made fun of in the past south park still abides by that rule to this day i don't i di- yeah. i dip into it every i don't know three or four times a year I, i'll watch a new episode um and it's still brilliant it's probably better now than it ever has been because they can make it so quickly and it can be really topical whereas the simpsons you know it's like a year to make an episode you know this thing is mm. it might be less than that now but uh the, you know south park can be turned around incredibly quickly they are poking at the conservatives they are poking at the liberals um, and they are getting everyone to try and examine themselves and just just question themselves a bit more. Um, they're very good at it. They're very good satir- uh, satirists. And um, I think Trey Parker, Matt Stone, I mean, almost because they're so prolific. It's almost like because Prince was like releasing like two or three albums a year or something. So then therefore, yeah. therefore, there's classic albums out there. There's albums that people don't are not in the public psyche because they were just thrown out there. And some of them are really good. Mm. And I, I do wonder with Trey Parker and Matt Stone, because they're so prolific, uh, you know, maybe they should only do like a season of South Park every two or three years. So it's a big event when it happens. I agree. I think that <clears throat> they've conquered every medium they've attempted. With Orgasmo, they conquered uh, raunchy comedy, right? And then with raunchy live action comedy. And then here with Basketball, I think they've shown that if they wanted to, they could do Zucker Brothers film. They can do that as well. They're excellent in it. They did a film with fucking marionettes. Yeah. And it was one of the biggest pictures of its decade. Uh, They did a Broadway musical. It's still going. They conquered animation with South Park. Uh, And this isn't to comment upon the extent to which South Park is compelling from an animation standpoint. It's very basic. But they they everything they've turned their hand to they've done really well and that's why i'm yeah i'm actually i'm disappointed that they haven't done everything a second time that since they did basketball they haven't bothered to do another kind of broad buddy comedy mm. and since they did team america that they haven't returned to that but then again honestly they they won it the first time they did it they won yeah and Cannibal as well. Cannibal's uh, their version of a live-action musical. It's really good too. You'll never get um, another I, South Park movie either. You know, you, you, oh gosh, you, I even forgot that one. Yeah, yeah. You, you, that was colossal. It was colossal. It was huge. It was brilliant. Um, but you'll, they'll never do another one. Like uh, they don't need to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think um, I think one way of considering their approach. And as as you said, it's their intention to make fun of everything uh, and pull no punches. And I think there's uh, logic in what they're saying there. But one way of looking at it is that that's exhausting. It's really difficult to go after everybody equally. It's much easier from a comedian's perspective to assign uh, arbitrary fences. Mm. I only make fun of X, Y, and Z, and the rest of the alphabet, I don't go near. Mm. Usually, the reason we do that is because we don't have the expert knowledge required to wring comedy from that particular aspect of culture. 
this is why basketball works and airplane works and the naked gun because the zucker brothers and their collaborators actually found genuine affection for zero hour and for police procedurals mm. and knew them inside out and that's why all those meet the spartans and epic movie things don't work because the people making them don't have enthusiasm for the films that they're lampooning mm. in fact they probably hate them and it really shows yeah, yeah. Um, so usually you know like i can't make jokes about um I can't make jokes about people into cars because I don't know anything about automotives and mechanics or even driving. Uh, so that's, it's not because I'm afraid of offending them. It's because I have no knowledge of that milieu. So the joke that I make would be pretty fucking basic. Yeah. And that's, you know, a lot of the time that's, a, that's why the, you know, the, the most, some of the most successful comedians are comedians that say things like, uh, you're in your kitchen and then you're trying to make a thing and it doesn't work. And like, obviously, like 98% of people oh, have been in their kitchen. I have been there. I have been you know, there. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, the other day that, I, I tried to make something it? and um, <laughs> it, yeah, it didn't work. Needless to say, you it know, didn't you, work. But it, it's, it's, hard, it's much harder work to go after everybody equally. It's, it's funny because 15 years ago, it was about 15 years ago when South Park did their uh, their episode about Scientology and that's when Isaac Hayes quit because he himself is a Scientologist yeah. and they said like hold on motherfucker you didn't give one tenth of a shit when we were making fun of everybody else but now it's your turn and you know your religion stroke cult's turn Yeah. and now now it's a problem that, come on man that's disingenuous I, I wonder if these days honestly I wonder if these days the reaction from the mainstream that the mainstream would in, uh, enable and embolden a reaction which said Look at these two white guys making fun of this black man's religion. Isn't that sick? Yeah, yeah. You think actually it's probably not sick. We can let's make fun of everything and stop stop always bringing. There is it isn't necessary to always bring pow, power dynamics into it because I personally, um, it's become so fashionable but not intellectually rigorous to say comedy doesn't punch down. Comedy shouldn't punch down. Why not? It should do everything. It should punch up, down, and sideways. Punching down is likely is likely to be less funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause it, because it's, a cheap, it's easier. It's a cheap joke or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it it could still be funny. It could still be legitimate. That's it's and also one of the great things about comedy, like we just said. Like, oh, if it's if it's too easy, it's less funny, and people will write it off as a cheap joke. That's one of the things I do like about comedy as well. Is um, even more than music. I always say this: like, if someone releases an average record, you kind of shrug it off. But when there's an average joke or a below par joke, like. The, the rigor that you hold you know a comic up to do you know what i mean like the, the kind of you yeah. get, as soon as something's not funny you go oh no that's uh, you know it's the, the gladiator arena and you you know the thumb goes down <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's brutal isn't right. it and so comedy has this i think this kind of ability to sort of self-police to an extent like well was it funny like <laughs> that is the kind of thing that you that you have to go yeah. by you're right it's the the, the uh, I love this word because I can't say it. The opprobrium, <laughs> you know the word I'm reaching for, uh, is disproportionate. And I think it might be because of something that Andrew Schultz talks about, a comedian that I've seen on Joe Rogan. I don't even know if I'd like the bloke's comedy, but I can listen to him for two hours and howl with laughter because he's so true about things. One of the things he presented to me, um, he was telling Joe Rogan, there's a, a couple of very clever functions that both sides of the political spectrum are using in order to get their criticisms across, right? So when the right wants to make a criticism, it knows that it can no longer deliver it through a white man because identity politicians will immediately say, shut up, white man, we've heard enough from you. So the right 
has a minority deliver that opinion. For instance, they did it with Milo Yiannopoulos, who's a gay fella, and uh, they'll usually find, if they can, they'll find a lady or a black person to make a critique. Because then on the left, the left is about to say, shut up, white, oh, you're not white. Oh, we're going to have to deal with the issue now. Fuck. Yeah. Right? In the opposite direction, us on the left, we... <laughs> I've been wondering this uh, about this myself, and Andrew Schultz explained it. We're starting to use children. We're using children to make the argument. And as Andrew Schultz said, because nobody on the right, nobody in the room wants to be the asshole who called the child a piece of shit. <laughs> and you see it, don't you? Because usually, regardless of the message, we kick off first on the messenger. Yeah. And we always, we, we, we'll always say that, that that messenger is imperfect. And it's a really easy way to dismiss the argument without even allowing it to be said. But on our side... It's as though we realise, fucking hell, we've got this 15-year-old, Greta Thunberg, and she's well into the environment. If we stick her up on a podium, who the fuck's going to have a go at her? She's a kid. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Schultz had a really good point. Uh, and I can't remember what I was making my own point in service to. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> We better try and but make it's it all, back. It, uh, you... it, it, it is all about... It's about the messenger, it's a, and it's funny. It's about. It's I'm all about. It's all about comedy needs to punch up and down and left and right and. Um... Yeah, I've, I always think it's. I, th- I think it's abundantly silly that we still, it, w- within the public discourse, we still live by the shibboleth. No, I can say my mum's fat. You can't be fucking saying my mum's fat. Yeah. And so what Andrew Schultz was saying is that comedians exist as bullfighters. They exist as court jesters in the in the. In the most classical sense, comedians are Lear's fool. The reason we have them around is because they're fucking useful at pointing out inconsistencies in systems. Yeah. We need those people around. We desperately need people who can step back, who are slightly aside from society and who have, who we entrust with the liberty mm. to make fun of systems. And then some of the time we learn something from it. That's what satire is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Andrew Schultz has said that comedians are like bullfighters. They're out there. They're waving uh, the red cloak mm-hmm. and the ball comes at them. And you think, oh, my God, there's no... He, he's talked himself into a corner. There's no way that he can get out of this. And then he, you know, pulls the cloak away, sidesteps the ball, and you think, fucking hell. You know, he, he went down that uh, avenue of interrogation. And when he started talking about disabled kids, I thought he was fucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, but he did it. He found a way out of it. Yeah. Well done, you know. Yeah. It's a high-wire act. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we... we we really mustn't um, lose our capacity to do that. We're going to need satire. Fucking hell, we've needed it for the last five years. We're going to need proper satire of both sides, left and right, over the coming decade. Oh, absolutely. Otherwise, I, I think we're in some big trouble anyway, but we're definitely going to need a sense of fucking humour over the next ten years. Oh, totally. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, so, hey, who, who, who knew? There is plenty to say about basketball. Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah there's a lot to say about it, yeah. And it's an, and uh, I'm not a proponent of Netflix. I haven't checked its availability on other services, but it is available on Netflix. It, if you can, pick it up on DVD. Yeah, I'd always urge people, like I always say, I mean, we can't... Can we get to CEX these days? Um, you will do soon. Um, uh, but CEX, I always go in there, I get a pile of DVDs for um, less than 50p sometimes uh, each. Uh, and I, I, um, I tend to recycle the cases, put them in my big wallet. Um, basketball is one I've had for many, many years. Amazon used a new. You can often get them for one penny and uh, just pay the postage. Uh, I always think it's worth it because, you know, you can still get three or four for less than the price of a streaming service, although we do stream. But um, believe you me, people, as soon as you start trying to do a movie podcast, 
and uh, you start to try and uh, stream stuff, you suddenly realise, ah, there's hardly anything actually on here. <laughs> I've investigated that point. It's on our website now. I made the precise observation that you have, Luke, and I even included it into the article, that uh, DVDs are uh, completely undervalued at the moment. Uh, the basic argument I made was you can stream Inception in 2K for 2.99, or you can have at your disposal the last six Christopher Nolan films on DVD for the same price. Exactly that, and... As, as we've Which also, is more edifying. And we've also touched on the the wealth of bonus features you'll find. So my bare bones basketball DVD does at least have... It has a reel of deleted scenes and it has uh, a making of that was done at the time but does have some insight into into the making of the film. And it was worth it alone, actually, for that line from Trey Parker and Matt Stone where they said, look, the minute we pull any punches is the minute that we are a bigot. So like we, we mm. make fun of everything for me that was so insightful and i thought hey that's a window into how these guys think and why they made this picture and why they did what they did um so a lot of this stuff is on youtube but, but honestly not all of it you know i i was googling that same making of of basketball i mean someone can maybe prove me wrong and bring it up but mostly it was just clips and, and the trailer um so a lot of this stuff is like verging on lost media uh it's, it's not available yeah. uh, readily the big obvious one at the moment, I think, is uh, the golden age of Disney DVD in the early 2000s, when there were so many documentaries of very high quality put on the two disc editions of all the DVDs, including uh, you know all the classics, you know Snow White, Little Mermaid, etc. I've got maybe two or three uh, that Lex and I have, um, and now there's the Disney Plus service which we have that we're streaming The Mandalorian on there, etc. I'm like, where are all these documentaries? Get them on there. I mean, people have been uploading them to YouTube, I guess. But I just think that they're sitting on a wealth of stuff that, that's really mm. worth... It's in danger of being lost. A lot of the people being interviewed on there are dead now, you know? Like, you know, the, the, the old yeah. animators and stuff. Like, it's really worth uh, remembering this stuff. I know that not everyone has space for DVD, but I, I find it actually far more uh, useful um, and, and, uh, and interesting. So thanks, guys, uh, for tuning in once again, listening to what we have to say here on the Evening Glass. And uh, like I say, more, more than we realise to say about basketball. Go to onesensationalshot.com. You can find out more about the pros and cons of streaming versus uh, home media, physical home media. Um, that's a really great article. I've just been scrolling through. I haven't even finished it. It's, it's huge. Fletcher's uh, academic insight into the uh, in, into into streaming versus physical media is, is is incredible whilst you're on one sensational shot.com of course you can um hit up the shop uh that goes to our ebay store where we sell all manner of things um laser discs uh posters old memorabilia soon to be some old comics of mine comic books uh are going to be selling those on there soon that funds the podcast people we don't um try to um, ask for Patreon money yet? Um, we're we're still a little way off that, and uh, we, we like to ask, you know, give give a real value exchange, not just uh, the content that we're producing here on the podcast, but hopefully, you know, maybe you want a poster or a record or something. So uh, that's the idea there. So uh, hit that up, and of course, um, please do leave us a review on iTunes, uh, subscribe on Spotify, do all the things that you need to do to uh, to to stay stay in the moment with us. Um, I'm going to try and carve out some more time uh, in the coming months. I'm going to be a dad imminently this will be the last podcast that i ever do as a, a fatherless man so um i'm looking forward to that guys and uh, there's still loads more to be talking about in terms of 
my DVD A to Z's if all else fails, but certainly, like I teased earlier on, Back to the Future, we're going to get there. That's going to be probably the next big thing, and we're going to do a piece on Marshall Lucas as well, the forgotten hero of Star Wars, who saved the original Star Wars film, made it what it was, and is now written out of history. So uh, we want to we want to talk about her too. So there's at least two episodes that have planned in right there. That's maybe our next two things, Fletch. So um, yeah, we, yeah. in between two, what is it? Two hour feeds? No. What what am I thinking? A baby feeds every two hours. They can feed for up to ninety minutes a time. You start counting from the beginning of the feed, not the end of the feed. So uh, <laughs> Alex will be doing most of the feeding, but I imagine I'm going to have to help out <laughs> with various bits and bobs. Um, it, it's interesting actually speaking to a number of different people. There are some people saying, um, you know, you've got to be there. You've got to do this. Uh, you've got to be there for your wife, etc. And then there's other people. I spoke to the guy at the garage who said, mate, you, you don't exist for the next year. Uh, all they want to be is on the tit and, uh, and, 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 <laughs> and just forget, forget your life. Uh, so I don't know. Lots of schools of thought out there, but um, I'm sh- I'm sure that uh, my day will, no matter what happens, my day will be filled with different things than it is filled with right now. So uh, yeah, guys, thanks so much for listening. Tune in next time. I'm sure Fletch will be picking up some uh, episodes without me, but uh, in the meantime, we'll definitely be talking back to the future, Marshall Lucas. Have a good one. Cheers. Bye. point there.